Good morning. How are you? That delayed, huh? Understandable. It is absolutely freezing outside. We had a uh, student who's now in college return uh, from Montana where they're attending college and uh, we were complaining about how cold it is around here and she just looked at us and said, shut up. Um, apparently it gets colder in other parts of the world than it does California. However, if you're from California like I am, anything below 60 might as well be below freezing. So uh, right now I'm really struggling in life. If you could pray for me, that would help me out a lot. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, you know, I don't know if you could tell earlier in our uh, service today, but uh, Jason and his family, uh, they're not exactly from around these parts. Um, they have a, a little bit of a tell with their southern draw, but they're actually from Tennessee. And um, I, I bring this up because uh, they've been with Bridgeway's family for uh, a little while now, not too long. But one of the things is, is this is the season of being thankful for things. One of the things I, I just was reflecting on in, in the back a moment ago was how grateful I am for their family, because they came here all the way from uh, Tennessee by way of Seattle, and uh, as soon as they got here, they used their gifting for hospitality and for warmth and invitation to really reach out to so many different families, my family included, and uh, I just wanted to say how grateful I am for you guys and, and your inviting of us into your home on repeated accounts, and uh, to me, that's one of the greatest gifts that uh, certain families, certain people have, is that hospitality and that warmth and that ability to just take over other families and invite them in and love on them. And, uh, you know, see, that's the thing. I, I happen to believe that everyone is gifted. And, and maybe that's kind of this optimistic viewpoint that I have, but I do. I, I think everyone is gifted. And perhaps you might disagree with me, especially if you're driving down Highway 65 amongst other holiday shoppers. And, and yes, you would have discovered that although everyone is gifted, not everyone has the gift of driving properly. And uh, we can pray for those people as well, as I certainly do, as I'm driving around uh, during the holiday season, but I do. I believe that everyone is gifted. I believe you're gifted. I think I'm gifted. And, and see, if you don't know how you're gifted, then I would greatly encourage you to take the time to try and figure that out. I, I've taken a ton of opportunity uh, with, if, as much as I can to figure out how it is that God has gifted me. Um, I, I've taken all kinds of different tests and you can take them too. There's tons online, whether it's personality tests or giftings tests or leadership style tests or um, love language tests. There's a whole gamut out there that are available to you. And my wife and I are really big into this. We like to figure out each other's personality and communication style and love language. And we bring that stuff into our family. And then we kind of uh, hypothesize about how our children are gifted and what their personality traits are. And, and it's all kinds of exciting. And uh, I happen to believe that as you're gifted, so should your leadership go. And so essentially you should lead out of your giftings instead of honestly trying so hard to develop gifts that are not necessarily naturally put in you by God. So if, if your gift it happens to be going out and serving others, then, then go and serve others. And if your gift happens to be giving gifts, I would just like to let you know what my address is. So you can go ahead and serve others with gift giving. Um, I have a certain number of gifts and, and over time I've studied what these are and I've figured out some of them. And, and in essence, along with figuring out what my giftings are, I've also had the opportunity to figure out what my giftings are not. And so I can lead from my gift set and, and avoid the things that are not natural to me. And uh, let me give you a couple of examples. See, I have the gift of standing in front of large audiences without crippling fear and intimidation. Not everyone has that gift, and, and I understand that. But in that process of discovering what my gift is, I also discovered that I did not necessarily have the gift to remember to always zip up my fly before going on stage. <laughs> Don't look. I've already checked, and we're fine today, okay? I appreciate your concern, though. Um, in, in addition to that, I've also discovered that I have the gift of planning great events and trips and camps and youth group activities and, and retreats that inspire middle school students from all over to want to be a part of it. I also discovered that I do not have the gift of remembering to pull the check meant to pay for one particular student said trip out of my pocket prior to washing my pants and turning it into a paper lint ball in my pocket. Fortunately, we've solved that problem as well. I have an administrative assistant. Now when people hand me money, I hand it to her and things are happy for everyone. Uh, Another example, see, 
I have the gift to come up with super incredible, amazing visions and plans of how things should go uh, so as to impress everyone. And I talk about these things from time to time. Um, But in discovering that I'm kind of a visionary leader, I've also discovered that I don't necessarily have the gift of foreseeing potential problems that could cause said vision to blow up in my face. And, And honestly, this is probably my most utilized gift. It is the gift of casting vision and getting other people on board for stuff and, and excited about the direction that we could go and what could be and what might be. But like I said, I don't always foresee the future and, and potential problems. I remember as a high school student, there was a, a particular girl in, in my youth group that I became more and more infatuated with. And one day I, I developed this plan of how we could spend some time together. Some might call it a brilliant vision, perhaps. But I thought to myself, I've got an idea. Here's what I'll do. I'll start a conversation with her and then I will note how dirty my car is and and how dirty her car is and, and then casually suggest that the two of us wash said cars together, which, as you all know, is code for, I think you should be my girlfriend. So, it's true. That next Sunday, I was standing in the parking lot with this girl making casual conversation, and eventually I worked my way over to the filthiness of both of our said cars, and right as this invitation was about to come out of my mouth for the two of us to go back to my house and wash our cars together in an enjoyable afternoon of flirtatious fun over the suds and bubbling of automobiles, um, the invitation started to come out of my mouth, and right as it did, my best friend comes trotting up into our conversation, and he hears me say, do you want to come over and wash our cars together? To which he responds, wait, we're going over and washing cars at Eric's house? To which she replies, yeah, it'll be a car washing party. You should come. To which he responds, great, I'll see you there. To which I respond, yay, it's a party. So the three of us, we make our way back to my house and we begin washing the cars. And the entire time that this is going on, I'm watching as my best friend is cracking jokes and he's telling stories and he's making her laugh. And at one point he picks up the hose and starts this water fight, which for the record, I thought of first. Okay. And that was totally going to be my move. But the entire time that we're going through this process, he's basically breaking every wingman bro code of ethics rule ever written in the book. And if you ask me, I think he was loving every second of it. And so this is going on, and, and we finally finished washing the cars, and, and I, my, my heart is left, you know, kind of floating down the stream of water towards the gutter at this point. And I, I'm thinking that the whole day is just completely ruined, and then all of a sudden this girl turns to us and she says, hey, before I go, I need to fill my car up with gas. Do you guys want to come with me? Then I start thinking, well, maybe today's not a, a complete wash. I mean, after all, I could... I could sit next to her as we drive to the gas station, which everyone knows is the most romantic spot one could attend with a female of your choosing. And and perhaps I could lock eyes with her in a loving gaze of affection as our hands gently and accidentally brush up against one another as we both reach for the radio knob, which everyone knows means I think you and I should be forever someone's and spend the rest of our lives together until we grow old together, so much so that one of us develops Alzheimer's disease and then the other one comes and visits said person in the old folks' home and reads about our love story to the other person for 10 (laughs) blissful moments of fantastic memories only to cuddle up and die next to one another in wedded bliss and happiness. It's my vision, okay? Anyways, she walks to her car and unlocks it with the remote. And as I'm casually walking to the passenger side of the vehicle and about to open the door, my best friend runs past me and he pushes me aside and he sits down in the front seat, buckles himself up yelling, shotgun. And then he looks at me with this smug look on his face and says, guess you're in the back, bud. I was so mad. And in this moment of vitriol anger, I look back at my best friend who's sitting in the front seat next to the girl that I had this whole vision and plan for, and I shout the first thing that comes into my head. I look at him, I point my finger, and I say, you weren't even supposed to come! 
A long pause followed, <laughs> awkwardly. And then finally, the two of them burst out laughing as it's discovered in that one moment, my entire intentions and my whole plan and everything that I wanted, not just for that day's event, but also my intentions for what I was hoping would eventually happen with this girl kind of unraveled and became clear in front of everyone. See, I had my desire, my intentions, and my plans for everything that was going on, but my best friend had a completely different idea and a different agenda for what he wanted to have happen. See, his aim was to blow things up. His aim was to make sure that the things I wanted to have happen didn't actually happen. And what's funny is the two of us have talked about this event since that day, and he acknowledges to me, yeah, my goal was to make sure you didn't do the stupid thing that I knew you were about to do. See, what my friend knew about me that I didn't necessarily recognize about myself at the time was that in that moment, I was hoping to find myself and my identity and my security in a relationship with another person. And my best friend had the wisdom at the time to understand that that is a really bad idea, especially for high school Eric to be a part of. And so he did the only thing that he could think of to help stop me from doing those things. And he stepped into the circumstance and tried to blow everything up in front of me. And as funny as stories from my dating life as a high school student are, and trust me when I tell you, there are many funny stories. Perhaps this at the core of each of us kind of speaks to this wrestling match that happens between us and God. See, God enters the picture of our plans and our desires and, and our hopes and our will. And he understands that the things that we can come up with aren't necessarily well thought out plans all the time. In fact, half the time, if not more than half the time, they don't exactly match up with what his will is and what his plans are. And he says, I've got to fix this. See, this can't continue the way that you think it should continue. I have a better way. I have a better plan. I have a better idea. See, if we're honest, we'll admit that we all have a desire to be in control. And perhaps this at the core of each of us speaks to the very beginning of sin itself. I mean, after all, what was it that caused Lucifer to fall from grace? Was it not his desire for control? Carried a little bit further and we look at the story in the Garden of Eden, we see Adam and Eve both wanted control of their own story. And in that, they rebelled against the will of God and fell from sin. But what is a desire control? When it's stripped down, when it's boiled down, what do you really see in our struggle for control? Isn't it really just a, a fancy way of communicating that we don't really trust God? See, when we struggle for control, when we desire to be in control of our own story, of our own will, of our own lives, of our own situation, what we're really communicating is, God, I don't fully trust you. See, I think I should be the one in charge. I think I should be the one calling the shots, not you. As we go through our daily lives, maybe we've heard ourselves saying things or thinking things or feeling things that sound a lot like this. See, I need to be in charge because I don't trust that my coworkers are equipped to be, or I need to manipulate people or situations because I don't trust that I can be open and vulnerable with others. I need to work 12 hours a day, six days a week because I don't trust that others will find value in me outside of what I produce or manufacture or build. I need to stretch myself financially because I don't trust that my friends will like me if I can't impress them with my stuff. I need to know God's will for my life because I don't trust that God's will has my best intentions in mind. And see, here's the thing. For as much as we come to church, as much as we're a part of small groups and Bible studies, as many times as we have coffee with our close friends and talk about the will of God, isn't it funny how every time we mention God's will, there seems to be this little addition that comes with it. This little add-on phrase that we tack at the end of all our conversations about God's will. Isn't it funny that when we look at God's will, so many of us believe that it's almost incomplete or unfinished. And so we go throughout our lives and phrases like this come out of our mouths or out of the mouths of others that we trust and listen to. And we hear phrases like, I wonder what God's will is for my life. 
I wonder what God's will is for our lives or, or for your life. And it's funny, but it isn't coincidental that if you were to do a word search on something like BibleGateway.com or BlueLetterBible.com or something like that, and you did a word search for a phrase like God's will for my life or God's will for your life or God's will for our lives, you would see that it produces zero scriptural results. But if you were to flip that around and do a word search for the phrase the will of God, it would produce 17 different scriptural results, five of which are the Apostle Paul recognizing that his apostleship and his calling are a direct result and only sustained through the will of God. See, it's almost as if we felt God's will required an additional piece in order to make it complete. And see, somehow in this modern evangelical North American Christian life, we become more concerned with whose life God's will is for than the truth that God's will has always been and will always be about himself and his kingdom. And perhaps our struggle in understanding God and his will has more to do with our willingness to let go of control over our own lives and trust that the creator and architect of all things not only knows what he's doing, but is worthy of our full and complete trust. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. The more we align with his will, the more we understand. The more we align with his will, the more we understand. When we ask questions and make statements about God's will with personalized ending, it's our way of saying, God, I trust you with the bigger picture, but I don't trust you with me. Once we can say, God, I trust your will is worth placing my life into, then the bigger picture of his kingdom becomes a lot clearer to us. And one of the best pictures of this dance that is played between trying to gain control and trusting God and trying to manipulate his will comes from the gospel's account of Jesus' betrayal at the hands of Judas. And in this passage, what we're going to see is incredible things about how the disciples take their stab at it. And, and the crowd and, and the people and the soldiers and the government officials and the religious authorities, they take their stab at it. But we also see Jesus and how he models for us this perfect opportunity and example of complete surrender to his heavenly father and to God's will. Our scripture comes from all four gospels, comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56, Mark 14, 43 through 52, Luke 22, 47 through 53, and John 18, 1 through 12. And what we've done is we've combined these gospel accounts together for you. They'll be on the screen behind me so that no one gets a paper cut trying to thumb through all the different pages and, and track along. And they're color coded as well. So you know which gospel author is saying which part. And this is what it says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, having procured with him a great crowd, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons, with swords and clubs. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And he came up to Jesus at once. And when he came, he drew near to Jesus to kiss him and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But then behold, one of those 
who stood by with Jesus, Simon Peter, having a sword, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. But Jesus said, no more of this. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, back into its place. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Then Jesus said to him, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And he touched his ear and healed him. Then at that hour, Jesus said to them, to the crowds, to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? When I was with you day after day in the temple, day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. You did not lay hands on me and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is your hour and the power of darkness. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we want to give you this time. God, we want to give you our hearts and our minds. Jesus, we pray that you would come in and just speak to us. God, with clarity of your word. Jesus, would we be able to leave here different than when we came in because of how you've impacted us? God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in your name. Amen. So let's go back through and take a look at this scripture and, and the authors and how they blend this together and what this might mean for us as we seek to fully submit our will to God's will, that we would follow only his will in complete trust of his plan and who he is and where he's leading. This is how John begins the gospel account. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. See, Jesus had just finished praying for both his disciples and his followers, as well as for those who would believe and follow after him long after he had died and risen back from the dead. And in one of the most beautiful prayers recorded in scripture, we see Jesus spending time praying, not just for his current followers and the disciples, but for you and for me. And I think this is an incredible account, and I don't want to spend too much time here, but I think it's important we realize that Jesus begins the model of what submission to our Heavenly Father looks like even in His prayer. Because if you remember the words that He spoke, He was on His knees praying fervently before God, and at one point towards the end of His prayer, He says, God, if there is any way that this cup could pass by me, that's my preference. But then He finishes it with probably the most important picture of submission that we have. But God, not my will, but yours be done. And even in his prayer life, and don't kid yourself, Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew what was in store for him. And he was fully human. And in that moment, he's thinking to himself, if there is any other way that this can happen, that's the way I prefer. Because what is about to happen does not sound too enjoyable. But he's never willing to try and circumvent the will of the Father or bend the will of the Father to his own, or try and manipulate it in some way that God's will is not accomplished. And he finishes his prayer by saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. And you have to understand what's going on kind of around Jesus. See, at this time, Jerusalem was absolutely packed with people. There were many festival feasts going on. Family was in town. Everyone is crowding through the streets and this place is packed. It would be a lot like if you imagine Costco's parking lot had a baby with Walmart's parking lot. And then that parking lot decided to have a 5 a.m. sale on Black Friday. Imagine that, but everywhere. And, and that's exactly what Jerusalem was like at this time. And so it's no wonder that there was this desire in this moment for Jesus to kind of retreat away with his closest friends and, and spend time with just them and time with just his heavenly father. And the Kidron Valley is located east of Jerusalem between the city wall and the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane is on the western slope of Olivet. And one of the things that I love about scripture when you dig into it is the little nuanced details that you almost miss if you're not paying attention. For instance, think about this. How intriguing is it that all of humanity began in a garden setting? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, we see that the creation of man happens 
in a garden setting. And then you fast forward into Genesis chapter 3 and we see that the fall of man also happens in a garden. And then we look forward and we see Jesus as he begins the process of bringing out the redemption of mankind happens in the setting of a garden. In one garden, the first Adam brings about sin and destruction to the world. And in the setting of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus brings about righteousness to all mankind. One garden, the picture of sin. The other, the picture of submission and righteousness. And see, that tells us that God in His will and His intentionality is highly purposeful. God is not haphazard. He is not randomly doing things. And for as much as we go throughout our life and question, God, what are you doing? God, what is your purpose behind this? God, why is it happening this way? Understand, God is not random. He hasn't fallen asleep at the wheel. He's not doing things by throwing a dart at a dartboard and seeing what happens. God is intentional, so much so that the exact setting where human history began almost matches the setting at which human history is brought to fruition through the sacrifice of His Son. That's kind of a big deal. Now the brook Kidron is also significant. See, the name means dusky and gloomy, and it refers to the dark waters that were often stained by the blood of the sacrifices coming from the temple. And Jesus and His, his disciples had to walk through these waters prior to getting to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's also historically significant as this was the exact body of water in which David fled from a people that had turned their back on him as their leader and from his own son who was trying to kill him, Absalom. And realize that Jesus from the line of David is running from a group of people who are about to turn their backs on him completely and was about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends and followers. And we see the intentionality of God. And John continues, he says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And we see that in Luke twenty-two thirty-nine as well, where it says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. Now some scholars even think that Judas may have led this band of soldiers to the place where they had the Last Supper first. And when they found that Jesus wasn't there, he then led them over to the Garden of Gethsemane where he knew where Jesus likely was because that was his secondary spot. And the only reason this matters to us is because it's the first place where we begin to see Jesus act out his heart of submission to the will of the Father. Think about this. If you know someone has it in for you, if you know that someone is after you, that they want to cause you harm, that they want to blow up your life, that they want to come and attack you, are you going to make it easy on them or are you going to make it hard on them? You're going to make it hard on them, right? I mean, that's what I would do. That's what any of us would do. Prior to me getting into ministry uh, full time, I, I had to have a bunch of different jobs often to support the ministry. One of those jobs was I actually sold cars at a local car dealership. I know that's shocking to many of you, but bear with me. Um, I, I worked at a car dealership and it will remain nameless. It starts with an R and ends with an Oseville Toyota, but, um, <laughs> details are not important. Okay. Uh, as I was being trained at this car dealership to sell cars, uh, I remember one afternoon they were teaching us the importance and the value of bringing people in from the outside parking lot where all the cars were to the inside to sit down at a desk so that we could talk about numbers and price and monthly payment and interest rate and all those kinds of details. And so while we were asking questions about why this was so important, he gives this analogy and he begins to tell us, listen, if someone comes to you and they say, you and me, we're going to fight, you name the time and place. Are you going to pick their backyard and on their time? Or are you going to pick your backyard on your time? I said, I'm going to pick my backyard on my time. He says, why? Why? Because I know my backyard because I can call on my family and friends to be there to back me up. And if this thing is going to go down, I sure as heck am not going to be alone. I'm going to have all my friends with me and we're going to win this fight. <laughs> And he says, exactly. It's the same thing in selling a car. If you're going to sell a car to someone, don't do it on their terms out where they're near their car and they can get away from you. Do it on your terms where you can... I know you're learning a lot about the car sales industry, aren't you? <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> you're going to do it on your terms. Now, here's the thing. Jesus knew full well what was about to come to him. He alluded to it multiple times throughout the days leading up to his eventual sacrifice. And even at the dinner earlier that night, he alludes to it and says, this is what's going to happen to me. Jesus is not aloof here. And if Jesus really wanted to, he would have done things to preserve himself. 
But he didn't. Why? Because he's submitting to the will of the Father. If Jesus wanted to preserve himself, he would have stayed in Jerusalem where all the crowds were. He could have gotten people riled behind him to defend him. He could have used them as a distraction and slipped through the crowd. Jesus understood what was coming, but he says it's important that I act out of submission to the will of my father. And so he was where he needed to be. Jesus, through his actions, was essentially saying, God, if you want me somewhere, I will be there when you want me to be there doing what you want me to be doing. And it's an incredible picture. It's Jesus saying that, God, your will should be above my own. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, having procured with him a great crowd, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people and the Pharisees. They went there with lanterns and torches and weapons and swords and clubs. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. There's a couple things to note here. The word band in John 18.3 can be translated as cohort. A Roman cohort was a tenth of a legion, a specific number. It actually accumulated to about 600 men. Now, it's not likely that Judas brought 600 men to the Garden of Gethsemane. That would have attracted a bit of attention. And the whole goal here was to not cause an uproar within the city. And so he probably brought quite a few less than 600, but this still wasn't a small party. It tells us that there were Roman soldiers, that there were officers of of the scribes and the Pharisees, probably a few Pharisees themselves, and a number of other people. And with them, they brought these torches and weapons and, and swords and clubs and all of these things. And we see them armed under Judas's instructions that they should not only prepare for a fight, but also to have to hunt Jesus down. And clearly, despite the amount of time that Judas spent with Jesus, and for all he knew about Jesus... It seems to me, based on how he instructed this group of people, that he didn't really know Jesus. Now, how funny is it that someone can be around Jesus so much and hear so much about Jesus, but not actually know Jesus? And isn't it also funny how similar we are sometimes to this group of people and how we approach Jesus? See, we approach Jesus with the same attitude, thinking that, well, Jesus knows what I'm about. And and make no mistake, like I mentioned earlier, Judas even knew that Jesus knew what he was about. Judas wasn't under any false pretenses that he was actually going to trick Jesus. He was sitting at the table with Jesus as Jesus said, listen, guys, the one who dips his bread after me will betray me. Here you go, Judas, take some. Jesus is like, I don't know what he's talking about. This is a mystery. I, it's, it's a brain teaser. I don't know, guys. I got to go. Excuse me real quick. Like Judas knew that Jesus was aware of his intentions. And see, that's the thing. A lot of us understand that Jesus knows who we are too. And so we think we have to approach Jesus under the same pretenses that Judas in this group did. Jesus, you know what I'm about. And so there's no way you're going to approach me. Jesus, you know what's in my heart. Jesus, you know what I've done. So if I absolutely need to find you, I'm going to have to hunt you down. I'm going to have to wrestle you into a corner. I'm going to have to convince you to pay attention to me. Since Jesus knows how I am, how I've betrayed him, surely he will hide himself from me. Surely he will not come to me. Surely he will not listen to me or invite me in or approach me. And as we watch this story unfold, we begin to see Judas, through this act of betrayal, begin to take his shot at controlling the Son of Man. See, we can speculate all we want as to what Judas's motivation or reasoning was for this, but I'm not really sure it matters. I don't know if it matters if Judas was trying to force God's hand and bring about the earthly reign of the Messiah or not. I don't think that's important. The truth is, Judas hated that Jesus was not adapting to the desires and the plans and the intentions and the will that Judas had. See, Judas had become frustrated. You're not doing it the way I think it should be done. So I'm going to force your hand. I'll start to do things that will cause you to intervene in the way that I want you to. And what we see here isn't just an act of betrayal, but a message of distrust. See, when we aim to control God and his will by forcing God's hand, we're saying, God, I don't really trust you. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And he came up to Jesus at once. And when he came, he drew near to Jesus to kiss him and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? 
Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. The word kiss there, when translated, doesn't just mean one kiss. It talks about a multiple amount of kisses. It wasn't a quick one and done moment, but a lingering act of betrayal that Judas committed. And isn't it interesting to see the response of Jesus in this moment? Knowing Judas's intentions, knowing what he was about, knowing what he put together. And in this moment, in the act of betrayal, Jesus still allows Judas to approach him, to draw near to him. And as Judas is acting out this betrayal, Jesus looks him in the eye and calls him friend. How does that not wreck you? To know that even in the moments where our trust for God is low and our desire for Him to bend His will to our own is high, He looks us in the eyes knowing what's in our heart and He calls us friend. That's a powerful statement about who our Jesus is. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. How powerful is our God that with his very words and acknowledging his presence, those in the front would be taken aback, lose their footing, and fall over at him just identifying who he is. And see, in this moment, Jesus takes over and makes it very clear to those that are present and even to us reading that everything that is about to happen and about to happen to him is about him. See, as hard as they try and as much as they want to, there is nothing that they can do to thwart the will of God. Jesus is saying, you may have come here with weapons and swords and torches and clubs. You may be thinking that you were the one that brought everything into this and you have the control, but you don't. I am the one in control. I am the one submitting to my father and giving myself to you. You are not in charge. And as much as his captors brought those weapons and came to deal with the potential risks, and as much as Judas created a prearranged sign to identify who Jesus was, And for as much control as they wanted to have in everything, nothing can happen without God's permission. You cannot intimidate the will of God. There is no authority. There is no government. There is no religious leader, no society that can control God, no matter how little they trust him or how hard they try. And here Jesus is making it very clear to everyone, in spite of your best efforts, I'm the one in control. For as many times as we feel like the church is under attack and prayer in school is under attack and Christianity in America is under attack, ours is not the first country, the last country, or the only country to struggle in this way. If we can learn something from this picture and what's happening in the garden here, it's that no matter what the organized activists are, no matter what the religion is, no matter what the governing authorities tried to do in the garden, no matter what they wanted, They cannot control the will of God. It's not possible. The Bible tells us that there is no power or authority in heaven or earth that can control or thwart God's will. See, in Romans 8, 38 and 39, we understand that I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor life nor death nor any other created thing can separate me from the love of God. And in Isaiah fifty four seventeen, we understand that no weapon that is fashioned against me will prevail. And we also understand from 2 Corinthians 10, 4, that the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh and blood, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Here's what this means. There is nothing on heaven or earth that will change God's will. He loves us and he will not remove it from us. It also tells us that there is no weapon that will win against his will. It also tells us that the weapons we need to fight with are not weapons of flesh and blood, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And if that's true, and I do believe that it is, then we need to understand that God's will is the ultimate authority. Amen? Amen. And so far we've seen Judas in his lack of trust attempt to control God's will by forcing Christ's hand. 
We've seen the authorities and religious leaders and the crowd and the soldiers and government officials in their lack of trust try and control God's will by coming to subdue it and force it into a box to follow what they want. And now we see how in their own lack of trust, those closest followers of Jesus Christ take their own shot at controlling God by defending what they think it should be. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But then behold, one of those who stood by with Jesus, Simon Peter, having a sword, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And I love this part. It's my favorite part. Why? Because three out of the four gospels kind of dance around this subject. They're like, yeah, there was a guy and he kind of had this sword and he kind of chopped off some dude's ear, but it's really not important. Let's move on. And then there's John's gospel. And John looks at this. He's like, yeah, that dude was Peter. Peter had the sword and he chopped off that dude's ear. And that dude's name was Malchus. That's why he got a funny ear. Don't invite Peter to your party. And if you do hide all the pointy objects, all right, because that man is crazy. John points out that it was Peter who was the one who chopped off his ear. And this is what happens next. But Jesus said, no more of this. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, back into its place. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Then Jesus said to him, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And he touched his ear and healed him. So Malchus, who is probably standing next to Jesus and perhaps even grabbing onto him, Peter sees this and he pulls out his sword and he makes a hack at Malchus's ear. Malchus does what any of us would do if we see a sword flying at our head and he ducks. Sadly, he has the agility of a sixth grade girl on a dodgeball court and his ear still gets lobbed off. It falls in front of Jesus's feet. Jesus scoops it up, dusts off some of the dirt, gives a little spit shine, slaps that bad boy back on and says, you're welcome very much. In my own version of this story, I like to think that Jesus put his ear on sideways a little bit just so that whenever people started staring at his ear, he would have to give his testimony of who Jesus was. But that's not biblically accurate. It's just my perspective on it. But here's the thing. Peter and the disciples believed that Jesus and his ministry and his purpose in the kingdom of heaven would be in great need of their defense. And it may seem odd looking at it from our perspective, but is it really? How often do we run to the attack with weapons of words and crafted arguments and more of the, in the name of defending our beliefs and our faith and our Jesus? We use social media to defend through attack as we comment on social and cultural and and societal issues that we're only mildly educated on. We protest and march to stand against the infringement of our rights to practice our faith in schools. But all of a sudden, we're too busy to march with our brothers and sisters who feel at best marginalized and at worst completely brutalized. We believe that the defense of our beliefs is the greatest thing that we can fight for. But what good is it to fight for a belief that never really caused a change in you? God has not told us to defend a faith or a belief, but rather to take up the cause of the poor and the widowed and the orphaned and the oppressed and to seek the salvation of the lost. See, Peter's not so different in this one moment than many of us are in our many moments. Peter swinging a sword in defense of Jesus' name causes us to often think, how can he honestly think that that helps? But I wonder how often God sees our Facebook posts, our tweets, listens to our angry coffee shop rhetoric, and looks at us and says, how can they honestly think that this helps? Notice how when Jesus and Peter walk alongside the shore after his death and resurrection, Jesus answers Peter's response to the same question he asked three different times. He says, Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter says yes, and every time Peter says yes, notice what Jesus says. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Then take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that this is true. Then feed my sheep, Peter. And yet so often we get lost in this idea that the greatest thing that we can do to defend our Savior is to go out and attack others in His name. Jesus says, you've missed the point. The point is what I told Peter. Do you love me? Great, then feed my sheep. 
Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Find the widows and the orphans and the lost and the broken and the downtrodden and the homeless and take care of them. Do you want to defend me? Then go out and act in my name in the ways that I've instructed you. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And this is my command, that you would love one another as I have loved you. We see that in John 14, 15, John 15, 12, and 1 John 3, 23. The same thing Jesus said to Peter, I think he might say to many of us, put your sword back in its sheath. Jesus could have called down 12 legion of angels to defend himself in the garden. That's one legion for him and one for each of the 11 guys standing next to him. Notice Judas did get a little left out of that conversation. But if Jesus is really concerned with some of the trivial things that we get so wrapped up in, don't you think that he could do something about it? I certainly do. And yet here we are constantly saying things, God, if if you knew what was best for your kingdom, you wouldn't let our country make these decisions about marriage. God, if you knew what was best for your kingdom, you wouldn't let our society or our culture promote such things. God, if you knew what was best for your kingdom, you wouldn't. And we go on and on and on. And like Peter, we begin to swing our sword in what we think is a defense of Jesus. But we forget that this is his story. This is his show. He's in charge and he knows what he wants to do. And we're blessed to be called according to his purpose. And finally, we see the conclusion of Jesus' betrayal play out like this. Then at that hour, Jesus said to them, to the crowds, to the chief priests, to the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? When I was with you day after day at the temple, day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. You did not lay hands on me. You did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus points out to them again, they are not the ones in control of this. They've not brought this about by their own will, but only by the will of God. He says, you have plenty of chances to capture me, but this isn't about your plans. It's about his. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested him and bound him. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And isn't it interesting how in all of this we see Judas tried to control God by forcing his hand and his will to match his own. The band of soldiers... The government officials, the religious leaders, they tried to control God's will by submitting it to their own and packaging up and forcing it to follow their lead. The disciples tried to control God's will by telling Jesus what he should prioritize and defending what they thought everything should be about. And now we see the disciples and even one of his followers make a last-ditch effort at controlling the will of God in a way that so many of us try to as well. See, when God's will can't be manipulated by us, see, when God's will won't submit to our own, when God's will doesn't match our picture of what we're trying to defend, we make a last-ditch effort and we do exactly what they do. And we run from God's will. God, if you're not going to make it match mine, God, if you're not going to do what I think you should do, God, if you're not going to allow your will to be what I think it should be, then I'm going to run from what you want to do. We kind of look at it and we think, man, God, if I follow your will, it might cause me to be uncomfortable. It might cause me a lot of pain. It might cause me a lot of worry. It might cause me a lot of sacrifice. But see, here's the thing. God's will rarely makes much sense to us, but we don't need to see the whole picture. God's will rarely makes us feel comfortable when we're in the middle of it, but we keep thinking it's about us, but it's really always been about him. And God's will often causes us to ask why this thing and why this time and why this way. But we keep thinking we deserve the answer before we can give him our trust. But what did their running really accomplish? Was God's will changed or altered in any way? No. Maybe you're here and you're a lot like Judas and you've been fighting to force God's hand in your life to do what you want it to do. You change jobs and houses and relationships and plans and goals and priorities and all sorts of things trying to get God to do what you want him to do, but it's not working and you know it. And maybe you hear God saying to you, it's time to trust me and submit to my plans now. Maybe you're like the soldiers and religious officials and 
government officials and you've been trying to manipulate God's will to match your own. You say, God, if you'll give me this, then I'll do that. God, maybe when you show me favor, I'll show you more. Or God, I never asked for anything, but I'm asking for this. Or you haven't answered me, and so now I'm going my way. And if you want me back, you'll have to earn me back. And we keep trying to manipulate and force God's will to match our own. And maybe you're hearing God say to you, you can't manipulate my will. This isn't about you, it's about me. We've seen how things turn out when you're in charge. Why don't we try it with me in charge this time? And maybe you're like Peter and you've been thinking this whole time that you're the one with the better plan as to how God's kingdom should look. And you go out with anger and vitriol and angst and you say things and you do things and you act on behalf of what you think God's will should be. You think that senior leaders within the church are just attention-grubbing idiots. The American church is more about uh, collecting money than it is preaching truth. The government has lost its moral compass and our culture and a society is a cesspool of a bathing tub for Satan to bathe in. Maybe you're hearing God say to you, stop fighting for things I don't care about. Put away your anger and lack of trust in me and know that I know what I'm doing. If you want to be active for me, love and care for the orphans and the widows and the lost and the broken. Or maybe you're like the disciples and the young man. Your desire for control and your lack of trust in God has left you with no other choice but to run. To run from God. To run from His will and from His kingdom. Maybe you hear God saying to you, I know you're hurt because I've felt it too. I know you're broken, but I was broken for you. I know you've been let down and you're angry, but I heal the broken. I hold up the downtrodden and I restore the mistreated. I don't give you a spirit of fear or timidity, but one of power and love and self-discipline. I assure you that you will not always be comfortable. This will not always be easy. And pain is a reality in this world, especially if you're going to follow me. But none of this will be done on your strength, but mine. So stop running from me. Turn around. Follow me. Whether it's pushing our agenda, manipulation, fighting, or running from the truth, all these boil down to the same thing. Are you ready to trust God? Completely and fully. Even if you never see the whole picture. Maybe it's time that we realize that the more we align with His will, the more we understand. See, God is faithful. God is just. God is holy and loving and gracious and righteous. And God is worthy of our trust. And as we continually submit more and more and trust Him, He begins to reveal more and more of Himself and His kingdom and more and more of who we are in Him. And that, that is worth every cost. Amen? Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a God worthy of trust. God, forgive us that so many of us have been walking, trying to manipulate your will, control your will, bend your will. And God, some of us have even been running from your will. God, today I pray that we would stop running, stop fighting, stop manipulating. God, that we would turn to you, lay our lives before you and say, I trust you. God, I will follow you. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.